This is the California Slap Law Podcast, episode 13. Welcome to the California Slap Law Podcast. California's slap law was a great idea, but it can be a minefield for the uninformed. To guide you through that minefield, here's your host, from the law firm of Morrison Stone, Aaron Morris. Welcome to the 13th episode of the California Slap Law Podcast. Should I have skipped episode 13, like buildings that don't have a 13th floor? Well, anyway, I'm Aaron Morris, a partner with the Southern California law firm of Morris & Stone. We are a boutique law firm with a primary emphasis on First Amendment and media law, defamation, and of course, anti-slap motions. We've been doing this for more than 20 years. If I can be of assistance with anything having to do with free speech, defamation, or anti-slap motions, please feel free to give me a call at 714-954-0700 or email me at morris at toplawfirm.com. Not the bottom law firm. You wouldn't want the bottom law firm. You want the top law firm. Morris at toplawfirm.com. Well, there's another great week at Morris and Stone. The vast majority of our work relates to defamation and anti-slap, but before we niche down to those practice areas, we did do real estate and appeals, and we still do those if the cases are interesting to us. So we took a real estate appeal. It was a HOA case, and the judge had awarded about a million dollars in damages resulting from some unauthorized improvements that our clients had made to the property. They had represented themselves at trial, and that didn't work out very well. The judge came up with a crazy scheme whereby the HOA could collect the million dollars from the homeowners and then make the repairs, make the remediation to the improvements that they had installed without permission. And the judge is a judge I really like. I've, I've been in front of him many times. In fact, I have two cases in front of him right now. Uh, I consider him to be one of the best judges on the bench, but he really got this one wrong. Anyway, the opinion came down this week and we prevailed. The Court of Appeal threw out the judgment and sent the case back to the trial court. Uh, The HOA can't seek a judgment from our clients until the work is performed. This was a crucial distinction because there was a huge gulf between what our clients were saying the repairs would cost and what the HOA was claiming. Our client's contractor had estimated it would be about $20,000 for the remediation, uh, but the clients, since they were representing themselves, didn't know to have an expert at trial, so they got steamrolled by the HOA's expert who estimated the repair costs at approximately $600,000. So under the judge's plan, ultimately the HOA would have taken our clients home. There, there's just no, simply no way they could have come up with $600,000 other than selling the home. So under the judge's plan, they would have lost their home and uh, the HOA would have taken the money and made the repairs. Now the HOA will have to make the actual repairs and can't just take our client's money or their home. I love victories like that. And I want to use our next big victory this week as a means to illustrate a trial strategy only available with bench trials. This is only available if you don't have a jury. And this isn't directly related to anti-slap law, but if you do anti-slap motions, I assume you're a litigator, and this war story illustrates a very powerful motion that no one seems to know about. Now, very briefly, this was another real estate case that we handled. This was a great case. My client had owned a beach home, and 25 years ago, he obtained permission from the Coastal Commission to build a seawall. Uh, sometimes also called a a bulkhead, to keep the waves from flooding his home. You build the seawall out on the beach a little ways so that the it stops the waves. So that was 25 years ago. Fast forward 25 years to the present, and the plaintiff, in this case, buys the house, intending to tear it down and build two homes in its place. So he bought my client's home for $5 million, 
and he testified that he anticipated the two homes that he was going to build would sell for $5 million each, basically doubling his money after you deduct the costs of construction. So not a bad day's work. Now, as part of the sale, my client made the standard disclosures, and he said that he was not aware of any permit issues. And that's the key word. He was not aware of any permit issues. So the plaintiff buys the house and submits his plans to the Coastal Commission to build the two homes. So the Coastal Commission says, well, sure, you can build your two homes, but we want you to move the seawall back about 30 feet closer to the houses. Now, if you know anything about the Coastal Commission, their their purpose in life is to keep the beaches accessible to the public. And they really don't like uh, seawalls. So if you submit any plans to them, they'll use that as leverage to get you to move the seawall back, theoretically, to create more beach area for the public. Now, in this case, the plaintiff really can't move the wall back 30 feet. It would really interfere with the plans he had for the two houses. So he got into a big fight with the Coastal Commission. And during that fight, the Coastal Commission determined that the seawall my client had built 25 years earlier was about six feet closer to the ocean than what the permit had required. At least that's the conclusion the Coastal Commission came up with. We never agreed with that conclusion. But the Coastal Commission did. They decided it was six feet closer to the ocean than it was supposed to be. And they thus deemed the seawall to be unpermitted. You didn't build it the way we wanted you to build it. You didn't build it in the location where we wanted you to build it, I should say. So as far as we're concerned, you never got a permit for it. And they they used that, the fact that this seawall was quote-unquote unpermitted, uh, as leverage against the plaintiff to try to get him to move the seawall back. Now, in the end, the Coastal Commission relented and let the plaintiff leave the seawall where it was. He let the plaintiff build the two homes. No harm, no foul. Everybody's happy. Life is good. But the plaintiff was not satisfied. He claims he spent about $750,000 convincing the Coastal Commission to let him keep the seawall. So he sues my client for 750000 claiming that he failed to disclose the permit problem with the seawall. I was hired to defend the seller. So the plaintiff sued for fraud and negligent misrepresentation. Plaintiff had requested a jury, but at the last second waived the jury. Now, I liked the judge we had in this case, so I went along with that and stipulated to a bench trial. And by the way, I'm sure you know this, but even if you waive jury and post no fees. If the other side requests a jury and then waives the jury at the last minute, you can pick up the jury. But here I thought the case primarily involved legal issues, so I was fine with letting a judge decide. Now, my client had represented only that he was not aware of any permit issues. And during my opening statement, I had stressed to the court that the case would come down to that one word, aware. The case would not turn on whether there was a permit issue, but rather whether my client was aware of that permit issue. So plaintiff put all his witnesses and documentary evidence on, and then he rested. In my never-to-be-humble opinion, he had not presented any evidence that would tend to show that my client was aware of the permit issue. So what type of motion should I bring to challenge the sufficiency of his evidence? At this point of the trial, everyone seems to think in terms of either a motion for directed verdict or a motion for non-suit. But there's a third motion, and that's a motion for judgment. A party may move for judgment in his or her favor after the opposing party has completed presentation of evidence in a non-jury trial. The judge, sitting as a trier of fact, may weigh the evidence and order judgment in favor of the moving party. That's what makes this motion so powerful. The judge can weigh the evidence. If the plaintiff rests and you proceed with your evidence, you may end up actually filling in some of the holes in his case. With a motion for judgment, you can force the judge to look at the evidence at that point in time at the conclusion of the plaintiff's case. You're forcing the judge to decide the case at the midway point. In my case, the plaintiff had not presented any evidence that my client was aware of any permit issue. My client testified that he had hired a contractor to perform the work, 
The contractor obtained all necessary permits, including one from the Coastal Commission. The seawall lined up with all the other seawalls in the area, and the city signed off on the construction after it was completed. The Coastal Commission doesn't have a sign-off process. They rely on the local government to do that, to do the inspection. So my client had absolutely no reason to believe the seawall was not constructed in the correct location. So I threw the gauntlet. There was absolutely no evidence that my client was aware there was a permit issue. So I said, decide it now, judge. Well, did I win? Well, I already said this was a victory, so I think you know how the story will end. But let's talk about the other motions just briefly. First, there's a motion for non-suit. A motion for non-suit is governed by Code of Civil Procedure Section 581C, which states, Only after, and not before, the plaintiff has completed his or her opening statement, or after presentation of his or her evidence in a trial by jury, the defendant, without waiving his or her right to offer evidence in the event the motion is not granted, may move for a judgment of non-suit. You can bring a motion for non-suit in a jury trial, and you can bring a motion for non-suit in a bench trial, but in the case of a bench trial, you can only bring a motion for non-suit at the close of plaintiff's opening statement. Let me say that again. After plaintiff has presented his case, you cannot bring a motion for non-suit in a bench trial. With a bench trial, you can bring a motion for non-suit, but only at the conclusion of plaintiff's opening statement. With a motion for non-suit, the court cannot weigh the evidence. The court can't even consider the credibility of the witnesses. A motion for non-suit is a demur to the evidence. A demur challenges the sufficiency of the allegations of a complaint at the pleading stage. A motion for non-suit challenges the sufficiency of the evidence at the trial stage. All evidence must be viewed in favor of the plaintiff, and then the court's only task is to determine if plaintiff has presented a prima facie case. What about a motion for directed verdict? A motion for directed verdict is governed by Code of Civil Procedure Section 630A, which provides... After all parties have completed the presentation of all their evidence in a trial by jury, any party may, without waiving his or her right to trial by jury in the event the motion is not granted, move for an order directing entry of a verdict in its favor. A motion for a directed verdict is subject to the same legal standard as a motion for non-suit. It's a demur to the evidence. Now, as stated, a motion for directed verdict can only be brought in a jury trial and only after both sides have presented their evidence. A motion for non-suit can be brought by a defendant, but a motion for directed verdict can be brought by either plaintiff or defendant. So now you see the interplay of these three motions. If you're in a bench trial, forget a motion for directed verdict because it doesn't apply, and consider a motion for non-suit only at the end of plaintiff's opening argument. But in a bench trial, your go-to motion should be a motion for judgment because it doesn't just demur to the evidence. It requires the court to weigh the evidence and make a decision. At worst, even if the judge denies your motion for judgment, he or she will likely give you some indication why, and that puts you on notice for the rest of the trial what the judge is thinking about, what the judge has observed, what evidence the judge has found important. That will give you some insight into what evidence the judge is finding persuasive. So back to my seawall case. Did I win the motion for judgment? Actually, my motion for judgment was denied, or more accurately, it wasn't granted. And that denial is why I wanted to talk to you about motions for judgment. Although I cited all the authorities that said the judge is permitted to weigh the evidence on a motion for judgment, the very first words out of his mouth were that he could not grant my motion because it would require him to weigh the evidence. See, judges get motions for judgment so seldom, if ever, that they they think you are bringing a motion for non-suit even if you specifically tell them you're not. And that's doubly crazy when you think about it because you can't bring a motion for non-suit after presentation of the evidence. The only motion available of the three I've just discussed in a bench trial after the plaintiff rests is a motion for judgment. Now, this is probably sounding like alphabet soup at this point. Don't try to remember all these rules. Rather, just apply your common sense. Now, think about it. 
In a bench trial, after plaintiff does his opening statement, no evidence has been presented. Opening statement isn't evidence, obviously. So a motion for judgment would make no sense. There's no evidence to weigh at the conclusion of plaintiff's opening statement. So you would move for a non-suit in order to argue that even if the evidence plaintiff outlined in his opening is presented, it won't establish a prima facie case. And after plaintiff has presented his case, a motion for non-suit would make no sense. And that's why it isn't permitted. At that point, the judge has seen all of the plaintiff's evidence, so why would you go back and demur to that evidence? The judge has the evidence, so you ask him or her with a motion for judgment to decide the case based on that evidence. Make sense? Apparently, no one had ever properly explained all of this to the judge. He was a very good judge, but he probably just doesn't see this motion very often. So he denied my motion thinking he could not weigh the evidence. I explained the rule to him again, and the best I could get him to do was to reserve his ruling. And here's where it got really fun. Here's where this case got, got entertaining. The plaintiff had rested. I'd done my motion for judgment. The court had taken it under advisement, reserving his ruling. And so he asked me to call my first witness. I just said, no, I'm not going to call my witness. I rest. So without calling a single witness, without putting on any evidence, well, I'd put on some documents through cross-examination, but I didn't, I didn't present any evidence during my case in chief. I just immediately rested after the plaintiff rested. And that deprived the plaintiff of the opportunity to put on any more evidence and forced the judge to have to decide the case based only on the plaintiff's evidence. So although my motion for judgment was not granted, I accomplished the same thing just by resting. The judge told us to come back in two hours for his decision. He ruled from the bench and found in favor of my client. He agreed that plaintiff had never presented any evidence that my client was aware of any permit issue. I'm actually kind of glad the judge uh, denied or temporarily denied my motion for judgment because... That takes that whole aspect out of any possible appeal. He didn't grant the motion for judgment, although I think it would have been absolutely permissible and well-founded. But instead, he went ahead and held it in reserve and then ruled on the evidence uh, as you normally would in a trial. So that, that might eliminate any contention on that basis. Now, interestingly, plaintiff did not sue under the very purchase agreement that contained the disclosure form wherein my client had represented there was no permit issue. And I'm not sure why he did that. He, he may have done it to avoid the arbitration clause, or there's also an attorney's fee provision in there. He he did ask for attorney's fees in his prayer, but does not the complaint did not specify the basis for those attorney's fees. So I will now be bringing a motion for attorney's fees saying that the case nonetheless arose from that purchase agreement. I'll let you know how that turns out. I hope you found that discussion of the various trial motions useful, but now let's turn to a couple of anti-slap cases that caught my eye this week. The first was McKayef versus Trump University. McKayef versus Trump University. A ruling came down on that case on April 20th of 2015, and if the name sounds familiar, it's because I previously discussed the case back in episode 7 when McKayef brought an anti-slap motion. Today I want to talk about the attorney fees awarded to McKayef for the anti-slap motion. First, a little law. I previously discussed a case here where I was brought in to fight a motion for attorney's fees. The client had filed a defamation claim that was thrown out on an anti-slap motion, and the defendant was seeking $100,000 in fees, and I was hired to challenge the amount of those fees. I successfully persuaded the court to reduce the fees to $50,000. I got him to knock half the, half the amount off. 
I go up for the hearing in Los Angeles, and I don't know why Los Angeles doesn't publish its tentative ruling, so you don't know what the tentative ruling is going to be until you show up in court. But I walked into the courtroom. There was a tentative ruling waiting. I looked at the tentative ruling and saw that the judge had knocked the $50,000 off based on my papers. And so when it came time to argue the motion, I said to the judge, listen, I can, I can see that you've really given this some attention. I appreciate that you've gone through. I appreciate that you've knocked 50% of the bill off, but I think I'd be remiss if I did not remind the court that where a party pads their bill, the attorney's fees can be denied altogether. And the judge looked at me shocked and said, pad the bill? I didn't see any padding of the bill. The court had concluded that 50%, half of the time requested, was inappropriate. How is that not padding or at least overreaching in this fee application? And the case I was relying on was a decision by the California Supreme Court. It's Serrano versus Unruh. And in that case, the Supreme Court held that in any fee application, if the party overreaches, the trial court may reduce the award or deny it altogether. Serrano was appealed at least four times, so go to CaliforniaSlapLaw.com for the particular site I'm talking about. Now, when I told that story about getting the fee application reduced from $100,000 to $50,000, I was outraged, and I still am, that a trial court could fail to see that requesting $50,000 more than what was reasonable should result in the attorney fees being denied altogether. They overreached. How can you trust anything they say if they were, in essence, doubling their bill? But wait till you hear what happened in McKayef. McKayef sued Trump University, saying its classes were worthless. Trump University countersued, claiming defamation. McKayef brought an anti-slap motion to the countersuit, and the district court denied the anti-slap motion, but the denial was reversed on appeal. With that reversal by the Court of Appeal, McKayef was now the prevailing party on the anti-slap motion, and so she brought a motion for attorney fees. Here are the numbers claimed by McKayef's attorneys. They said they'd spent 2,226 hours working on the anti-slap motion and the appeal. They charged $250 to $440 per hour for the associates that worked on the motion and appeal, and $600 to $825 per hour for the partners. All told, they requested $1.3 million in attorney's fees and costs. Trump University fought the fee application, and the trial court agreed that the fee application was way too high and knocked $543,000 off the bill, reducing it to a paltry $790,000. So the fee application was reduced, but there was no consequence for overstating the fee application by more than half a million dollars. How, How can there be no consequence for overstating your fee application by that much? And think about the time McKayef's attorneys said they spent on the case. I always think in terms of man months, man weeks, man years, and this is one of the ways I argue these cases to the court when I'm hired as an expert. Most firms, if you're working at a big firm, you might find what I'm going to say entertaining, but the, the reality is most firms require their associates to bill about 160 hours per month or about 1,900 hours per year. Now, I realize that a number of attorneys worked on this case, but I like to bring it down to the concept of a single attorney. According to McKayoff's attorneys, this anti-slap motion and appeal required the efforts of an attorney working full-time for more than a year on nothing but this case. Again, there was more than one attorney, and it stretched over more than a year. I'm just creating the scenario in terms of the hours that were spent on this case. I have this very humorous image of the attorney every Friday looking back on his week and saying, I spent 40 hours this week working on nothing but that stupid McKayoff case. 
Then the next week, I spent 40 hours this week working on nothing but that stupid McKayef case. And that scenario would be repeated the next 50 weeks. Over dinner, his wife would ask him, Hey, honey, what'd you do to work today? And he would say, I did what I always do. I worked on that stupid McKayef case. That's the kind of concept I use to get the courts to view these sorts of numbers in a real-world context. Hopefully, by putting it in terms like that, you can get the court to appreciate the absurdity of the hours being requested. Again, I want to throw in a disclaimer. I don't know if these were absurd in this case, but it just seems like an attorney devoting his full-time efforts to nothing but this case for an entire year seems on the high end. By the way, if you ever do find yourself on the wrong end of an anti-slap motion and are facing attorney's fees, be sure to give me a call. Thus far, knock on wood, I've always been able to get a reduction in the fees, often a very significant amount. Of course, your mileage may differ. I actually represented Donald Trump in the past, so I'm surprised no one called me on this one. You'd think I would have been in someone's Rolodex. The final anti-slap decision I want to talk about came out on April 23, 2015. This was an anti-slap motion that failed, but I can completely understand why the attorneys thought it would work given the facts. The case involves two sheriff's deputies out in San Bernardino County. They had an arrest warrant for the plaintiff's daughter and chose to serve that arrest warrant on Christmas Day of 2010. Uh, They showed up at the house, but they didn't find her, so they returned five days later, and this time they nabbed her and arrested her. Uh, What they apparently didn't know was that the arrest warrant had been recalled three days earlier. So at the time they arrested her, there was no arrest warrant. Oops. So the arrested woman's mom sued the two deputies under a bunch of theories, including false arrest. And they also sued the two deputies for defamation, uh, allegedly for remarks they made to neighbors during the arrest. So the two deputies responded by filing an anti-slap motion, claiming that a police officer performing an arrest is a protected activity. Judge Gilbert Ochoa out in San Bernardino County denied the motion on two grounds. First, he said that the deputies had failed to show that the activity in question arose from an act in furtherance of defendants' right to petition or free speech. And the second reason was a procedural one. Judge Ochoa denied the anti-slap motion because the deputies had failed to support their motion with a declaration. I want to freeze right there because this is a crucial point. Right there in Code of Civil Procedure Section 425.16, subsection B2, the statute states that, quote, in making its determination, as regards the anti-slap motion, the court shall consider the pleadings and supporting and opposing affidavits stating the facts upon which the liability or defense is based. Some courts take that literally. An anti-slap motion is like a trial. The defendant must put on evidence to defeat the claim or at least to refute any evidence the plaintiff might present. If you don't attach a declaration to the anti-slap motion, some courts will deny the motion on that basis alone. Now, you may be asking yourself, what circumstance could ever arise where you would not attach a declaration? Think of a summary judgment motion. You would never file a summary judgment motion without a declaration, so how would it ever come up in an anti-slap motion, which is sort of a uh, hybrid of a motion for summary judgment? Well, it comes up when the complaint's own allegations show that the complaint cannot survive. I'll confess to you that I fell into this trap early in my practice. As you'll hear, it was no harm, no foul, but I did once file a anti-slap motion without a supporting declaration. Now, I don't remember the exact facts of the case, but I, I think it was a situation where the plaintiff was suing my client for defamation during his testimony at trial. 
there couldn't be a clear slap. It's going to fall under the litigation privilege. So what would I have my client say in a declaration? My motion was about five pages long, and I just argued that even if all of the allegations of the complaint were taken as true, plaintiff cannot state a cause of action because of the litigation privilege. And I simply didn't think to attach a declaration because there was nothing for my client to attest to. What would the declaration say? Yes, I was. I did testify at the trial, and yes, I did make the statement set forth in the transcript attached to the complaint. He would just be confirming what was in the allegation. So I went in and filed the anti-slap motion without a declaration, and then I remembered Section 42516B2 and really sweated out the time until the hearing, uh, worrying that the motion might be denied on that basis. The plaintiff was representing himself, thankfully, and, and he certainly didn't bring up the issue in his opposition. And when I filed the reply brief, at that time, I attached a declaration from my client to respond to the points the plaintiff had brought up in his opposition. It was probably improper, but I at least wanted to have a declaration in the file so the court would see it and and not try to be hyper-technical on me. As it turned out, the court granted my anti-slap motion, so as I said, no harm, no foul. But but that gives you an idea of how attorneys, like the the attorneys representing these two deputies, managed to file an anti-slap motion with no declaration. It was not in dispute that they arrested the woman. They were just making the legal argument that the arrest process is a protected activity, so it wouldn't automatically occur to you to attach a declaration under those circumstances. But now you know how it can happen. Even if the declaration states the obvious, though, be sure to attach one so you don't give the court a procedural basis to deny your anti-slap motion. Now, let's get back to the meat of this. Why was the arrest not a protected activity? Well, let me read you what the Court of Appeal found. Justice Thomas Hollenhorst, writing for the Court of Appeal, said that execution of a search warrant is not protected activity within the meaning of Code of Civil Procedure Section 425.16 and upheld the trial court's denial of the anti-slap motion, stating the following, quote, At base, the execution of a warrant is not an exercise of rights by the police officer. It is the performance of a mandatory duty at the discretion of the court. Because the peace officers have no discretion in whether or not to execute a warrant issued by the court, it seems unlikely that a lawsuit asserting claims arising from such activity could have the chilling effect that motivated the legislature to adopt the anti-slap statute, or that extending protections of the anti-slap statute to such activity would serve the statute's goals, close quote. The defense failed to explain how a routine misdemeanor warrant in a case that apparently attracted precisely zero public interest or discussion qualifies as a public issue or an issue of public interest as the statute requires. With all that said, here's why I can understand that the attorneys representing the deputies might think this was a slap that they could successfully defeat with an anti-slap motion. They cited to a case called Kemp's versus Beshwaite. Kemp's versus Beshwaite. The facts of the case are pretty convoluted, but here's basically what happened. It was a criminal action, and the defense counsel had obtained a subpoena for a witness, Kemp's, to appear at the criminal trial. Kemp's failed to appear, so the defense attorney requested an arrest warrant. Kemp's was arrested and and was made to appear at trial. Kemp's said he never received a subpoena and sued the defense attorney for abusive process and infliction of emotional distress. The defense attorney filed an anti-slap motion, which was granted. The court in Kemp's v. Beshwaite found that obtaining a bench warrant falls under the litigation privilege, so the anti-slap motion was properly granted. It's kind of a no-brainer. If defense attorneys could be found civilly liable for requesting a bench warrant when a witness fails to appear, 
or even to have to go through litigation, it would certainly chill their ability to represent their clients. So no doubt when the attorneys representing the deputies in the case we're discussing were presented with a case where the deputies were sued for effectuating the same said bench warrant, clearly they thought that would be covered under the litigation privilege. The difference though, according to the court of appeal, was the chilling effect. In Kemp, the defense attorney decides to seek the bench warrant. If you subject a defense attorney to liability, it will have a chilling effect. But in the case of the deputies, they have no discretion. You can chill their desire to do this all you want, but the fact is they still have to do it. They're just carrying out their duties. So that's it for this week's episode of the California Slap Law Podcast. We covered two recent slap cases and perhaps introduced you to a new trial motion for use in bench trials, or at least reminded you of its existence. If you have any questions or you want to see the case citations I've referenced today, be sure to go to CaliforniaSlapLaw.com. Until next week, have a great week and try not to slap anyone. Talking about the case in San Bernardino reminded me of one of my early anti-slap motions. It's the only one I've ever lost that I remember. It involved an online review about an attorney. Quite simply, my client wasn't happy with the services his attorney had performed, so he gave him a bad review online. But the review was very even-handed and certainly was not defamatory by any stretch of the imagination. But a number of other people had written bad reviews about the attorney, and some of those did cross the line into defamation. So the attorney got it into his head that my client had posted all the reviews views and sued for defamation on that basis. I filed an anti-slap motion out in San Bernardino, supported by a declaration stating that my client had posted only the one non-defamatory review. The attorney filed an opposition but could not provide any evidence to show that my client had posted the defamatory reviews. Today, such a motion would be a slam dunk, but back then, the idea that a review about an attorney could be a matter of public interest or that a website could be a public forum were issues that were still in flux and certainly not settled. But that's not the reason the court denied the motion. I drove all the way out to San Bernardino for the hearing, and the court's basis for denying the motion was that an online review is not the proper venue for criticizing an attorney. The judge stated on the record that my client's speech was not protected because the only proper forum for criticizing attorneys is through the state bar. Wow. Now, it still ended in victory in one sense. The attorney saw the writing on the wall and dismissed the case, but my client didn't get back his attorney's fees for the anti-slap motion. But sometimes all you can do is all you can do. If you get a judge who takes a detour like that, there's not much you can do. We could have appealed, of course, but it didn't make economic sense for the client. Thanks again for listening, and I'll be talking to you soon.